Well, if you take the word of God and turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter number one. If you were not with us last week, we began our journey through the book of Jonah. Two weeks ago, we finished up the book of Philippians after a solid amount of time there, and the Lord blessed and um, striving for different reasons, a number of reasons, as to turn to the Old Testament and glean from the scriptures there. And as I said, not only personally, but pastorally, and a number of other purposes, I believe the Lord has led us here to the book of, of Jonah. And today will be somewhat of a second introductory sermon. Um, some of these can be a little difficult in the beginning, but I trust that if we lay the foundation, um, the Lord will, will tremendously bless if we will gain that understanding as we begin to open up the pages of, of Jonah. I believe it has much to offer. And um, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. Um, we need it. That we may be the men, women of God, uh, thoroughly furnished for every good work. There's something here that God desires for us to have as the people of God that will equip you, benefit you, um, complete you, edify you uh, for the cause that Christ has, has called you. And that's what we're aiming at as we come to the book of Jonah. Um, if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. And we'll take our, our text this morning out of the first four verses. One more. Go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll, we'll proceed. Um, Jonah chapter 1, verse number 1, we read these words. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Let's pray. Father, we come to you once again, particularly asking for the blessing upon the reading of the Word of God. Father, even as it goes forth um, uh, from my body, Father, out of my breath, and we, we recognize that you are able to accomplish more than we could accomplish, Father, um, with all the generations combined. Uh, Lord, we, we recognize our um, inability this morning. We confess, Father, that we are incapable. Uh, I confess this morning, Father, that I have enough of a mind that you've given me and strengthened my bones um, to give a decent academic exercise of the first four verses of, of Jonah. Father, we recognize that that is not the purpose of your word. The knowledge alone puffs up. We recognize that the word was given that we may commune with the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit, Father, that it might give life and life forevermore, that it may bring sinners uh, from death unto life, and that it may uh, make, sa make saints more like Jesus Christ. So that's what we pray this morning. Father, um, try our hearts, as the psalmist said, even as we read this morning. Search, Father, our hearts and try our reins, even my own heart, as I labor in the word, Father, to give it. May you transform me by the renewing of my mind, Father. And may you make me more like your son as a result of our gathering together, Father. Um, may we be more loving, more holy, more righteous, more patient, more long-suffering, more giving, a whole host of attitudes, attributes, and actions, Father, that 
um, are indicative of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that our children may take note, that our wives and husbands uh, may wonder at the display of God's character in us, that the world may look and see and wonder at what, what exactly um, is in us and among us, Father, and may we point them to Christ and Christ alone. So for the next hour, Lord, may you just help me um, to point to Christ and Christ alone, even in somewhat of a seemingly obscure text. Um, Lord, we know you can do this, so we trust you now. In Christ's name, amen. And you can be seated. Thank you so much for, for standing. As I mentioned, we began last week uh, with somewhat of an introductory uh, sermon, trying to lay a foundation upon which to glean from the book of Jonah. I mean, we took somewhat of a high-level view um, to really seek to understand what God was seeking to accomplish in the mission and the commission of the prophet Jonah. So we didn't necessarily take the text and begin to pick it apart, but look at it as a whole, somewhat of a 10,000-foot view. Tried to put it in its historical context, tried to lay a stake in the ground that we believe here, I believe, I believe most of the church, if not all the church, I hope all the church uh, believes that, that this is a historical book. It's a narrative, meaning that it really happened. And we're not talking about an allegory here um, in which these are fictional characters to draw some truth, somewhat like a, a sanctified pilgrim's progress or a, a, a scriptural pilgrim's progress. Um, those things have their place, but I'm, 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 not po- I'm, I'm positive that that's not what God intended so he sought to lay it in its historical context and, and trusted that that actually gave it meaning as well. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. Um, in the first half, the second half, uh, strive to give some purposes as to what God was striving to accomplish. Maybe those primary messages or message that you would draw out of the book of Jonah. And one of the primary messages, some would argue, and I would argue as well, that the book of Jonah is, is primarily about the mercy of God. Um, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 says, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I believe that that's true of this book. And when you look into the book of Jonah, what you will see is the mercy of God. You will see the grace of God extended in unfathomable ways. And that's what I hope that you keep in the back of your mind. We gave three initial purposes for the book of Jonah. Uh, One was that God would show mercy to Assyria. And really this would be the first time that we would see in the Old Testament canon, in Old Testament Israel, Israel, um, that you would see a prophet uh, break the borders of Israel and go to the nations. And in some form you would see Abraham's promise being fulfilled that the gospel, that Christ would, would be a blessing to all the nations. And you see God pour out unspeakable mercy in the book of Jonah upon an Assyrian people, the capital of Nineveh, um, somewhere anywhere between 600,000 to 2 million people. Um, God sovereignly sends a prophet Jonah to preach a message in which he will convert seemingly all of them. Uh, Number two, not only was God extending mercy and grace to uh, Nineveh, but God too was showing mercy to Israel. Jonah won't understand this, Israel didn't understand this, and maybe on many days we don't understand this. But Deuteronomy 32 is clear. In the covenant uh, dealings um, of God with Israel, 
Um, in their covenant, the, the, one of the stipulations was that in their obedience, they would receive the land. In their disobedience, they would be expelled from the land. You see that pattern all throughout the Old Testament. Beginning in the Garden of Eden with their sin, disobedience leads to expulsion from the land. Obedience is blessing in the land. Part of that disobedience, um, the, 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 those covenant sanctions in Deuteronomy 32, is that in their disobedience... Um, in their idolatry, God would actually provoke them to jealousy by extending grace and mercy to a people who were not their people. That as long as they continued to rebel, and they were in a period of rebellion during this time, um, the time the prophet Jonah is preaching, um, along with Amos and Hosea to the northern tribes, we find the nation of Israel on decline. Um, they're in a, in a state of spiritual wickedness and idolatry. God extends a blessing in spite of that. And he sends Jonah to Nineveh. He extends this grace to Assyria. And the proper response for Jonah would have been, Amen. <laughs> Look at this amazing display of God's glory, Israel. We need to turn back. Uh, in a similar way that we see the work of God in other people's lives. And God provokes us to sanctification. God provokes us to edification. God promotes in us spiritual um, life as He stirs up the grace of God in our lives. Why? Because the truth is now being proclaimed through visible illustrations of God's mercy and grace to our children, to our loved ones, to our family members, to our church, and to a community. And that's what should have happened. As Jonah went and preached grace and mercy, a message of repentance... Um, and he saw them turn wholesale. Uh, there should have been revival in the nation of Israel. Uh, but there wasn't. And we'll see what happens later with that nation. But there wasn't. So God's purpose was to extend mercy to Assyria, but also to extend mercy um, to Israel, to God's people, um, in their covenant unfaithfulness. And third, uh, well, God, God's purpose in the mission of Jonah seems to be, from a New Testament perspective, um, prophetic. Jonah is going to be an image. He's going to be a signpost. Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 11, uh, uh, Matthew 12, Luke chapter 11, Matthew 16, is that the, the sign of Jonah, that, that Jesus Christ would be a signpost, or that Jonah would be a signpost for Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see. Tried to elevate that and highlight that last week, emphasize that. And later on, we'll do more of that. This parallel between uh, the sign of Jonah and Jesus Christ. In some ways, he's a type. Boys and girls, he's a picture. He's not the thing, but he points to the thing. Right? When you see a picture, it's not that person, but it points you to a person or a scenario. It's all The Old Testament is filled with those. Those pictures and promises, this continued revelation, this progressive revelation that is pointing to Christ. And Jonah is unique in the way that he points to Christ. So what is God accomplishing? What is His purpose in sending Jonah? Extending mercy to the Assyria. Extending mercy and grace to Israel. And today, to extend mercy and grace to you. That as we look into the book of Jonah, that we should see more than a great fish. It should be more than a Sunday school lesson. It should be more than just a miraculous event that, that extends to us or that produces in us some sense of wonder. Um, it should be life-giving Christ-centered uh, book in which points us to Jesus Christ. And in relationship to that revelation, uh, we should learn some things. We should grow in some areas. 
You know, um, we should see ourselves. We should examine in it. God should be trying the reins as we receive the word of God. We look into Jonah's life that, yes, it's going to be didactic. We're going to learn some things. There's going to be some instruction. This morning, we're going to look into the life of Jonah. And the the pages are going to seemingly get a little bit darker. It's going to be a little bit harder. We're going to get a little bit practical. And that's why the purpose of the sermon last week um, was, was given. Because in the midst of the difficult things and practically applying and the darker pages of um, Scripture, church history, and our lives, we must be often reminded of the grace that is given. And even this morning in verses 1 through 4, I'm going to strive to highlight that grace. Grace that is often unseen. Grace that is often unnoticed. Grace that is often unexpected. If we were to write the book of Jonah, and we were to package grace, as it were, in a gift to Jonah, we probably would not have packaged it like our Lord in verse number 4. You know, hurling a great wind. But what you will see, I hope, is that that is grace nonetheless. That is God committed to His people, utilizing whatever means necessary to keep His covenant with them, to draw them back to Himself. And that's what I want you to keep in the back of your mind. That there may be some seemingly harsh things happening in the book of Jonah. There may be some seemingly extreme things, some would argue. But that's because our God has extreme love, great compassion. And He will never leave nor forsake any of His. He will lose none of His sheep. Therefore, the Father will pursue, utilizing means that He desires. So you will see grace given as God calls Jonah to mission. You will see grace rejected. Yes, grace rejected. Mercy rejected as Jonah refuses to complete the task. You'll see the most unexpected grace as God pursues Jonah in the most unexpected of ways. And to end it, I would simply ask you to reflect um, you know, the, the book of Jonah, one of the most unique things about the book of Jonah um, is that Jonah is not allegorical necessarily, but Jonah is somewhat illustrative or an illustration to us. That when you read the book of Jonah, he's like no other prophet. All the other prophets, for example, Amos, Hosea, and these other men, Ezekiel, what you find is that their instruction is in the message that they preach. God gives them a message to preach. Much of the book is that message. They go to Israel, they cry out repentance, and you see the details of that. You don't find that in Jonah. Jonah is unique in that way. That actually the message of Jonah is contained in the man. You see his journey. You see the narrative. You see God's dealings with him. And that's where the instruction comes. That you see truth proclaimed through and and admonition, correction, instruction in righteousness through God's dealings with Jonah. How he responds, how he doesn't respond, his attitudes, his actions. So as we, as we labor through the book of Jonah, um, I, would, I would beg you to, to look at him for the instruction. Why? Because the message is not in the message that he preaches inherently to. The message of the book of Jonah is not inherently contained within his message to Assyria. But the message for us, primarily, in the book of Jonah, is in the man Jonah. It's in who he was, what he did, where he went, and what he should have learned. Because he doesn't seem to have learned it. And so let us begin, number one, 
uh, verse number 1 and 2, I want to give you Jonah's directive to go. Jonah's directive to go. Um, simply, boys and girls, God is directing Jonah. <clears throat> so God gives him a directive or a command. And that command is to go, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. Um, very quickly, um, just a word about Jonah. If you weren't here last week, um, in Jonah's commission of God, there's, there's some things that we learn about Jonah in the Scriptures. Um, not much here, to be honest with you. Um, it's actually in 2 Kings chapter number 14, I believe it's verse number 23, that Jonah is named as a prophet of God. God uses him prior um, to in the northern tribes to actually proclaim a message to Jeroboam II, the king, during that period of time. So now that the Israel is split, you have the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Um, Je- Jonah is a prophet to the northern tribes. Um, they're wicked people. They are um, declining in morality. And God does an unthinkable thing, and He sends a prophet Jonah to proclaim a message to the nation of Israel that God is actually going to um, bless them in spite of their disobedience. He's going to expand the borders of Israel even when they do not deserve it. And that's spelled out in 2 Kings chapter 14. Why? Because God, it says God has mercy upon them because He sees the affliction of the people and that it is too bitter for them. So God extends mercy in the midst of wickedness. And in some sense, that is Jonah's preparation for preaching a message of mercy to Assyria, a wicked people who don't deserve it. If anybody should have gotten the message, if anybody should have signed up at the head of the class to go to Assyria to talk about mercy from a very experiential way, Jonah would have been the man. Um, the text says in Second Kings uh, verse, uh, chapter 14 that he is a prophet. Uh, a prophet to the ten tribes of Israel. He's a predecessor, a contemporary of Elijah and Elisha. He may have well been trained by them in the school of the prophets. There's an old ancient tradition, again, not scriptural, but an ancient tradition that argues that Jonah was actually the son of the widow of Zarephath that was raised. Uh, he, was, he was probably at least around that age. And what we hear here, or what we see here, is that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Once again, not only in 2 Kings 14 with a prophecy, um, a command, but also here in Jonah chapter number 1. That the word of the Lord literally comes to Jonah. Um, it's a common phrase for God's prophet. It's said of uh, somewhere around a hundred times in the Old Testament. It's spoken of going to Abraham, to Moses, to Samuel, to Nathan, the major prophets, the minor prophets. And it typically refers literally to a word from God. Um, this word would literally come directly from God to the prophet. And the prophet would carry that word as somewhat of a burden that he must lift off of his shoulders. Uh, the word prophet in the Old Testament actually has a word picture with it um, that, that, that would, that, that would um, in, a, in a non-spiritual type of way, would actually bring to mind somewhat of a pot boiling over. That as you heat up a pot filled with water to the brim, as the bubbles begin to, to um, form, the pot would actually begin to boil over. 
And the idea is, is that the prophet, like I think it's Jeremiah who says it's like a fire that's shut up in my bones. It's like a, a hammer that breaks the, the heart. It's, it, it breaks up fallow ground. It's like a sword that is a double edge and it pierces to the dividing asunder. The prophet would be the one carrying that thing. And as he boils over, it would boil over to the people of God. Um, that's the idea. And you can imagine that as Jonah is bringing the word of the Lord um, to Jeroboam the second and the people of God, how he must have been boiling over at the mercy that God was going to have on Israel, even in spite of their wickedness. But here in the book of Jonah, there's not even a simmer. Um, Jonah is not boiling over at all. He's not fulfilling his duty. Um, there's no burden upon him to be lifted. He would actually like to cast it off in the sea if he could. But he is officially a um, prophet nonetheless. A prophet of the son of Amittai, the text says, literally means a son of truth. Amittai means literally true. If names mean anything, and oftentimes they do in the scriptures, it would indicate that Jonah was a son of truth. That he was a man brought up in Israel, Second um, Kings chapter 14 um, tells us that he was a, um, a native of Gath-Hefer, or Hefer, um, which would have been, uh, in the New Testament times, approximately where Nazareth was. He was an Israelite, probably brought up in the truth of God's Word, in the Old Testament perspective, and I'm convinced a convert, um, a believer, and officially designated as a prophet. And this prophet, like all prophets, are given a word. And this word is a commission. So we see that Jonah is commissioned by God. What's his commission? Go to Nineveh, that great city, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Again, Nineveh was that capital city of Assyria. Assyria is that nation that will eventually, in seemingly one to two generations, be used by God to scourge Israel and take the ten northern tribes into captivity because of their disobedience. Maybe one of the reasons that Jonah doesn't want to go. As a prophet, he may very well know that Assyria is going to be the rod in God's hand, Isaiah chapter number 10, to bring um, Israel back to repentance through um, captivity and scourging. The text says, Arise, go to Nineveh, Nineveh that great city. Nineveh, again, was the capital city of Assyria, and it was great. It was great in so many ways. It was great in geographical size. It was greater, historians tell us, than Babylon in the height of its glory, um, such that the text of Jonah says it takes three days' journey to encompass the whole city. It was great in population. Um, the, the text in Jonah tells us um, most would take it, that there's 120,000 uh, people that don't know their right hand from their left, possibly infants. If that's true, there's anywhere from 600,000 to 2 million people in the city of Nineveh alone. Um, its structure was great. Uh, history tells us that the walls were 100 feet high. And at the top of those walls, three to four chariots could ride together. They would have chariot races, it's recorded. Around those walls was some 1,500 towers that would span twice that height so that they could see enemies coming from afar. And, and not only was their structure, population, and geographical size great, their influence was great. The seat of government in Nineveh, uh, or the, the, the seat of government was in Nineveh. This is where the king would dwell and the rulers and governors of all of Assyria. This is where they would gather together. 
Um, this was a truly great city. Not only that, it was great in wickedness. Um, these were men um, and armies and leaders and governors who were known for their brutality. Um, they were great for a reason. Their influence was great for a reason. Their structure was great for a reason. Their population was great for a reason. And their size was great for a reason. Why? Because they had gained it through wickedness. They had gained it through brutality. And this is the place that Jonah is to go. He is to go. I want you to note a couple of things about this commission. That this commission is a sovereign commission. Um, God simply says, Jonah... Get up and go. I mean, it's simple. Get up, go, cry out against that nation. God here exercises His divine right in Jonah to accomplish His will. And His will at this moment is to save Assyria and extend mercy to Nineveh. The command reflects somewhat of a divine impatience. If we can say that in a as holy of a way as possible, not to impugn God, but, but to explain it in terms that I can best understand, that the command is somewhat of a, a command of expediency, um, a divine impatience to warn Nineveh. And there doesn't seem to be any preparation prior to it. There doesn't seem to be any, like in Jeremiah and Isaiah, a vision beforehand where Isaiah would fall down and that he would be brought to the end of himself and then he would rise up and, and God would say, is there anybody here who will go for me? And he says, you know, send me, here I am, I'll go. But where, are you, where am I going to go? You're going to go here. How long am I going to stay? You're going to stay until all the cities are desolate. You know, like this is your commission, go. And guess what? Nobody's going to hear. You know what Isaiah says? Here am I. Lord, send me. Jonah's almost the opposite. He has no preparation to go. His heart, he is not ready. And God says go. And he's afraid they're all going to repent. Um, that God doesn't give him a preparation time. He doesn't seem to poll Israel. Ask them what they think. He doesn't wait for a desire to be born in Jonah. So that it can work itself out in his desire like we do today. Um, no, he simply says, Jonah, knowing his heart is not where it ought to be. Um, regardless of how he feels about the call, um, obedience is still upon him. God sends him. Why? So that God may extend mercy upon a wicked people and even use it as a means to draw Jonah back to himself. But even with a heart full of mercy, God doesn't just exonerate Assyria. Um, God works through means. And he will not confer that mercy until there's repentance. And he will not, uh, they will not have repentance until, um, until someone preaches the word. As Paul says in Romans, how will they hear unless someone is sent? Or unless someone preach? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? So God sovereignly commissions, even apart from Jonah's will, his will in Jonah to go to extend mercy upon Assyria, Israel, even Jonah. Not only is it a sovereign commission, it's a righteous commission. He says, go to that city, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. What I'm saying is, is that he's saying, Jonah, I'm not calling you to do anything that you shouldn't want to do. It's not unrighteous. It's actually a righteous thing. 
I'm calling you to cry out against that city because it is a city worthy to have someone cry out against it. Why? Because their evil has literally come up before me or is before my face. That's what the word means. It's before my face. Now, if you're in the habit of taking notes or underscoring things, I would have you underscore that phrase. It's become up before me or before my face. Why? Because that means something. And it means something distinct. It means something significant. You know, as David prayed in Psalm chapter 139 this morning, um, so we could, we could argue somewhat of the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. Not only that, he knows the secrets of men's hearts. In some sense, um, all of our wickedness is ever before him. Right? If that means the same thing, if we're just talking here about the omnipresence of God or the omniscience of God, that God knows everything, He knows the secrets of our hearts, um, then man, like we're 40 days from, from, from condemnation all over the world. Because there's not a nation here that, 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 that meets the requirements of God's standard. Um, that, that when He says that the, literally the wickedness has come up before my face, it is a distinct wickedness of a certain degree in which demands God's justice. It's like in Genesis chapter 6 when he says, My spirit will not always strive with man. If there has come to a point in which there is something about to break, and it's either going to be the hearts in repentance or it's going to be the judgment of God. It's similar to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 20. The same phrase is used. Speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah. Thus, God caused Jonah to go and, and, and complete a righteous act. Jonah, you should go. Why? Because it's a worthy endeavor. It's a righteous endeavor. That there is wickedness that has come up before me, that is pleading for justice and judgment um, and in response to their abominable practices. Jonah is sent then to a people because justice is crying out for an abominable people in which Jonah doesn't know even a fraction of their wickedness, but every ounce of that wickedness has come up before the living God. And in some sense, his patience is running out. His long-suffering, he will not be suffering much longer. And this is a reality that probably needs to be underscored. Because men constantly try to convince themselves that their sin doesn't leave the room. It doesn't hurt anyone. We're not doing anything. Therefore, they should simply be left alone. Um... But what we need to realize today, and this is maybe a, just a quick point of application, is that what we do does matter. That even in our isolation and seemingly in a vacuum, when you think it doesn't, it does. That our wickedness, God knows about. And that His Spirit will not always strive with man. Therefore, they need to know. They need to know that God is not like them. Reminded of Psalm chapter number 50. Where God indicts. Upon this very reality. He says in verse 16. He, 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 there's a tremendous blessing offered prior. But then he turns to the wicked in verse 16 of Psalm 50. And he says. But to the wicked God says. What right have you to declare my statutes? Or take my covenant in your mouth? He's going to go on and indict them more. But in verse 21, he says, These things, these, the wickedness, you have done, and I kept silent. I kept silent. 
You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Verse 21, you, you see that one of the attitudes of man is explained. That he is saying, because your sin is committed and I don't send immediate judgment, you think that I'm like you. You think that I don't care. You think that I'm forgetful. You think that I don't exist. You think this or that. You think that just because I haven't sent judgment today and you've lived 40, 50, 60 years without any condemnation heaped upon you, you've, you've formed this idea of, of me and it's created an apathy and an indifference in you such that now you just go around doing whatever you want and, and you need to know something that I am coming. I will rebuke you. I'm not like you at all. Don't confuse my grace and my long-suffering and my patience with you for apathy or indifference or non-existence. That, that you confuse the fact that I have given you another ten years under the hearing of the gospel in a gospel-saturated community. You, you, you forget in Israel. He's talking to God's people there in Israel. You forget... Um, that, that I am a long-suffering and a patient God. And the fact that I have not poured out judgment or disciplined you in the last ten years doesn't mean that I don't care. It actually may mean that I do. And I give you one more day, and I give you ten more days, and I give you ten more years. Don't presume that I'll give you ten more. Don't presume that I'll give you one more. Understand the patience and the long-suffering and the grace of God. And that should be enough for you to turn today. Thus, when, when Jonah is sent to the nation of Assyria, he is sent to proclaim a message of repentance of 40 days, 40 days left before judgment comes. Why? Because God's patience is running out. And God is saying to Jonah, there are people within those walls. And although they are not the covenant people of Israel, in the same manner that you are, they are not outside the pale of accountability to me as the God of the whole earth. He is the King of the nations. He is the judge of the earth. And I am just as interested in every deed that they do as I am with you. Revelation chapter 4 verse number 11, that He created all things and He is worthy to be honored and praised because simply because He created it. And as the creator of the Ninevites, He too is the moral judge of those men, those women. And has reached a certain degree. His patience is running out. Enough is enough. The cup is full. Jonah, you have to go. Get up. Get up and go. I know their sin. It comes before me. Not only, but not only is this a um, sovereign commission and a righteous commission, but finally, I want you to know that it's a gracious commission. It's a gracious commission. Jonah should have been itching to go. You know, he's going to, they're going to go. He's going to go. The commission is to preach. And it's to preach a message of repentance. To cry out, their wickedness has come up before me. You know, and I know that that doesn't sound grand. And I know that that doesn't sound glamorous. And it doesn't sound glorious. It's not like 2 Kings chapter 14, before King Jeroboam II. You know, prosperity is coming. It's not a prosperity message. It's hard. It's difficult. 
today, even today, we don't generally equate the preaching of repentance with graciousness or mercy. But the preaching of repentance truly is. When a man understands the destructive nature of sin, the danger that it makes us to one another, and the danger that we are to ourselves, and that left to our own devices and wickedness, we will destroy ourselves, then he would see that for a man to call out, return, turn to God, repent of your sins, you're headed for self-destruction, he would see it as a gracious act of God as you pull him from the fire-laced brands. The message of repentance, yes, it shouldn't be belligerent, and we shouldn't be demeaning, and it shouldn't be ill-mannered. But the message of the gospel is a message of repentance. And the only reason that it's ever negative, or will be perceived as so, is because men do not want to repent. It's only negative. If you've erected idols that you will not tear down, that actually the message of repentance is this. Be reconciled to God. The greatest gift that you'll ever receive is reconciliation with our Lord. That, that salvation, yes, in that gift is, is, is the greatest gift, but it's only a means to an end. That the end is actually fellowship and reconciliation with God. Salvation in Christ, the death there upon the cross, to abolish your sin is the means by which brings you back to God. That when we preach a message of repentance and turning from sin... And belief in Christ, it is a, a message of abandonment of all the self-destructive um, realities in your life. Such that, that you would see the folly in it all. Broken cisterns which can hold no water. That you may have the water of life. That it may spring up as a well within you. That this was a gracious commission. This was not a hard message. In some sense, this was the most gracious message that they needed. But not only was this a gracious commission in the sense of the message, but it was a gracious um, 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 commission in the sense of, of Jonah's commission. Right? Like, it's gracious that God calls us to do anything. Right? Like, salvation is not only a, a forensic declaration a legal declaration of your guiltlessness before God. But God, the creator of heaven and earth, implants something within you to employ you in the service of the king. And he puts every single person from a New Testament perspective in that body, calls them to a service, gives to a service, gives and equips them for that service. And then it is our utmost privilege to fulfill that commission, that mandate anywhere and everywhere that God has called us in the context that he has placed us. The Jonah should have seen this or should have should have understood uh, verse number one, two, as this gracious act of God calling him to service for the king to to pull, um, to pull a people, a wicked people, out of the brands of the fire, extend to them the same grace and mercy that he has um, experienced. Jonah should have received this as a gracious act of God. And he should have went, as a prophet does, boiling over, unable to be contained with the message that God would send him. But he doesn't. And he wouldn't. So number two, we see not only um, Jonah's directive, but Jonah's defiance of God. Jonah's, de Jonah's direct defiance against God. And this is a unique event. 
I don't know of any other time in, in biblical history. Maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me later. In which a true prophet receives a word directly from God. And that prophet sets out open, blatant disregard for the call. Instead of boiling over with a message, um, he throws a lid on it and seeks to pour it out somewhere else across the world. He plans to lock it up in his own heart, never to touch his lips for the people. So the text says in verse number 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God speaks, he gives a commission. What does Jonah do? He gets up, fulfills the first. He says, get up. What does he do? He gets up and he goes. He goes, but he goes in a total opposite direction. Um, Tarshish is, 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 is not 100%. Uh, we're not 100% confident or say with any certainty where Tarshish literally was. But to suffice it to say that all the options that are on the table, it's on the other side of the world. It's the direct opposite. That, you know, one is to the east and he is going to the west. Um, he did so in an attempt, why? To flee. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Why? From the presence of the Lord. So what does he do? He goes down to Joppa. Finds a ship, goes down to Tarshish. So he, pay, he pays the fare. He, he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Again, emphasis is laid. When you see phrases like that repeated, verse number 2, twice he says he went to Tarshish to flee the presence of the Lord. He went to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Then he continues on in verse number 5 to go down into the lowest parts of the ship where he will be laid down and fast asleep. Um, The same word there that's used of Adam when he's put to sleep in the garden. Um, That he was in a deep, deep sleep. What do we mean by this? He did so in an attempt to flee from the presence of the Lord. Yahweh. In your translation, it's probably capital L-O-R-D. The translators mean by that that the original word is Yahweh. It is Jehovah. It's covenant-keeping God. It's not general Lord. Um, Capital L, lowercase O-R-D. A general word that could be used of the, the Lord's governors, men of rulers. This is covenant-keeping God with Israel, covenant-keeping God with Jonah. Um, he is fleeing from the presence of the covenant-keeping God. Um, and just like that phrase come up before me, um, this too is a distinct phrase from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because Jonah knows. Um, he's been in Israel long enough, grew up as a son of truth. There's enough recorded history. There's enough um, revelation given to him that he recognizes that God is omnipresent. He's not going anywhere that God's not. Um, there's no sea that's deep enough. There's no heaven that's high enough. There's no cave that's dark enough in which he could ever flee from the actual presence of the Lord that God could not find him. Um, so what does it mean? Um, I think that it means that Jonah is fleeing uh, from the special intimate presence of God. Um, The phrase is used in different places, but you see it in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 8 with the first sin of our parents. You'll find that they were communing with God there in the cool of the day. And what happens? They enter into sin and rebellion and fellowship is broken because of their sin, and as that guilt weighs upon them, what do they do? And they flee from the presence of the Lord, and they seek to hide themselves from Him. 
Genesis chapter 3, I think it's verse number 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? In chapter 4, verse number 6, you see the same phrase. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Um, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. You should uh, rule over it. Um, and the same phrase in the original is used in there to speak of him, him, him being removed here in just a moment from the presence of the Lord as he goes on. He's going to be cast out. He's going to be um, removed um, to a different location. The same phrase is used in Second Kings 13 as well. Um, speaking of Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, he says. Um, had compassion on them, regarded them because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. No doubt that's a reference to casting them out of the land. That there was a place in, during that period of time, just like in the garden, in which God dwelled among his people. There are certain things in which God gives to the people of God at different periods, in which to fellowship and to commune with him. And that as sin enters into our bodies and we willfully rebel against Him, you know what happens? Um, if immediate fellowship is not restored through repentance, what do we do? Guilt overwhelms us and we hide from the Lord. We run from His presence. Um, that there are times and places in which God communes with His people where He deposits His fellowship uniquely, such as in the presence of the saints among His ordinances, at the Lord's table. That's why if you're not in fellowship with Him and God's people, you shouldn't take. Um, that, that, that He is uniquely present among, right? What He's saying is that in the state of Jonah's disobedience, Jonah has determined in and of himself to put himself so far away from every visible reminder of the living God because he knows he's wrong with God. He knows he's broken fellowship with Him. And everything that would infringe upon his conscience concerning the claims of God, which he's accountable, he's going to remove himself from. You see, there in Israel, there were too many reminders that were going to agitate his conscience to provoke him to do what God had called him to do. So he removes himself from them. He must flee. So Jonah seeks to remove himself from the precious places, the thoughts, and the means where Yahweh makes himself known. Why? Because he knows that if God is there, um, he'll have to repent in some measure. And you know that's true with you, right? Like we know that. We know that when sin overwhelms us, when we willfully, unlawfully engage in activities that, that we know are wrong with God, that unless we are broken in the moment and repent immediately, what do we often do? We try to hide the guilt. And we can't hide it in and of ourselves in our conscience alone. We must hide it from all the visible reminders. So you know, that's when you begin to fall out of, of regular attendance at church. You don't answer the call when a brother calls you or a sister texts you. There's a hesitation. Why? Because you know. If I continue this conversation, I've got to repent. So you run. You, you stop reading your Bible. Um, you stop going to the secret place so that you can commune with God. 
Why? Because you're clinging to your sin for whatever reason. Principled, unprincipled, you may have a reason you may not know. But this is what Jonah's doing. There's no doubt in my mind that Jonah knows that what he's about to do is wrong, yet he calculates a willful disobedience such that he's willing to pay a fare. You know? He goes down to Joppa, finds a ship, probably thinks, man, this is all working out. I mean, there's just a ship here. Seems to be room. I've got enough money in my pocket. Puts on the fare, goes down into it, and thinks, heads towards Tarshish, and thinks, he won't find me there. You know? Why did he go? There's a hundred reasons. You read different men, you listen to sermons. I mean, just the, the, the ideas are just endless. <laughs> Why does Jonah not go? Because Nineveh is a tough place. Never been out. Um, he'll be seen as a lesser prophet. Why? Because he's not going to Israel. Um, this or that. There's a hundred reasons that people get. You know, it's an arduous journey. He doesn't think that he can make it. Um, it's a hard message. These are a rough people. Like, what's the king going to do? Slice his head? You know, like they, they argue a hundred different things. Um, but I mean, the, the reality is clear in chapter 4, verse number 2. Jonah refers back to when he disobeyed God, and he tells God in a dialogue why he did it. He says that he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? When I was in Israel, before I fled to Tarshish, before I got on the boat, before I paid the fare, before I got up. Um, was this not what I told you? What I said? There seems to be some communion with the Lord that he argued with the Lord in his country. Was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And Jonah was upset with God because he knew that if he preached, God would save those people. He knew that God was the kind of God to save sinners. And he didn't want it. He wouldn't have it. At least he wouldn't have it as his own hand. Um, he wouldn't take the gracious call that God had had called him to as a, as a gracious commission. Um, in some sense, he saw it as a, an affront. Um, he spurned the grace of God because he didn't agree with the Lord. Um, and in some sense, I think he knows that he's wrong, and that's why he flees from the presence um, of the Lord. You say, why, if you want my opinion? Um, it's because he had adopted. Again, this is my opinion. There's, there's all, a whole host of different theories. Um, such as he feared his credibility as a prophet. He feared the well-being of the being of the nation because Assyria would one day um, plummet them, plummet, uh, pummel them. Um, that he's fearful for the honor of Yahweh. You can read all about this and all the different men, commentaries, and many of them faithful. Um, I'm convinced that he had adopted um, the, 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 the temperament of the day and the nation of Israel. That in their spiritual decline, they had thought that they were greater than others. They were the apple of God's eye. And you, you can see that even within the prophet of God, within the leadership within the church, even among, uh, I believe, converted saints, um, you can see the spirit of the age just, just pierce the heart of the church, even within the leadership, and contaminate um, an evangelistic zeal and a, fulfillment of the, and, a, and a fulfillment of the prophecy even given to Abraham that, that Christ would go to the, that, that the gospel would go to the nations. You know why? Because it says that he was angry in verse four, chapter or chapter four, verse two. 
And while we recognize that there is a righteous anger, um, seeing that he is debating with God and seems to be wrong, I, I would conclude that that is not a, a righteous anger. That it is an anger born out of arrogance and, and pride. And it wasn't a passive thing. As a result, it's calculated, deliberate, and he continues to go down. Number three, I want to give you, um, to finish out, not only um, his defiance, but number three, um, not only Jonah's defiance of Yahweh, but Yahweh's dedication to Jonah. Yahweh's dedication to Jonah and the mission. Verse number four, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Um, I think it was uh, Joel Beakey in a sermon. Jonah's inescapable God um, argues it like this, that Jonah deserts God, Yahweh, but Yahweh will not desert Jonah. That Jonah may desert God. But God does not desert Jonah. Now up to this point, if you had no recollection of the book of Jonah, it's a brand new story. You're raising up your little one. You only read, you know, three or you've got a teenager, someone who can, who can critically think. And I mean, they know a little bit about the word. They know something of God's holiness and his justice. And they know something about the rest of the book. And what I just read in chapter four and verse number two, and you see Jonah is somewhat um, disagreement with God is defiance of the Lord is calculated. I mean, like, what would you do? What would you expect God to do? Right? I mean, God has every right here to say, you deny me, guess what? I deny you. But He doesn't. You may think He does because He's going to do some unthinkable things. Maybe possibly what you think is extreme. He's going to, he's going to send a storm that is, that is out of control. And it may look to the natural eye or the unconverted as somewhat of, of folly upon God or him throwing a temper tantrum or even casting evil upon Jonah. But it is going to be those means by which brings Jonah to repentance in chapter number two and to cry out unto God. One of the, you know, the, the highest, um, the highest prayers that we have um, of repentance in all of the scripture that you're going to see in some sense that this is that this is God pursuing Jonah. He doesn't deny him. He doesn't cast him off. And he's not like most people believe in God today in which he will not overpower his will. You know, God's a gentleman. Uh, he won't he won't invade in the privacy of men. Jonah, you know, I mean, He's very active and he's very engaged in the people particularly in which he covenants with. And he's keeping covenant with Jonah. He follows Jonah down to Joppa. He's there alongside him at the wharf. He recognizes it when he pulls out the money to pay the fare. Jonah may think that he's all alone and that he can find some way in which God will not bother him. Again, like most people's ideas today, you know, that if, that if you don't want to believe in God, God's fine with that. And if you're God's children, you can just walk away. Like he won't, he won't, uh, you know, he, he's not going to overpower um, your will. He's just going to let bygones be bygones. And, and you do your thing and he'll do his thing. Um, not with Jonah. Not with Jonah. He's made a commitment to Jonah. Jonah's made a commitment to him. And God is going to exercise his sovereign will. And that Jonah may keep his commitment. Jonah may have thought that he only bought a one-way trip, 
but God's about to make it too. And that God is the initiator. He goes after Jonah. And you see that in the text. You see the, the contrast in the text. In verse number 3 you see, But Jonah, but Jonah, but Jonah. Jonah went down, Jonah went down. Jonah did this, Jonah did that. Verse 4, but the Lord. And there's the contrast. Jonah's activity has been noted. In verse 4, God counters. With what? With no ordinary storm. God puts a halt, a stop sign in the tracks of Jonah such that it pauses him uh, to, to where he cannot fulfill his own will. Literally, the text here in verse number four um, could be, so he says that, and there was a, so, so, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Um, literally, it could be God hurled a storm in the midst of the sea. Um, it's the same word that's used of, of, day, of Saul um, tossing a javelin at David seeking to kill him, but he missed. God does not. Um, God sends the storm. And He sends the storm to, 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 to stop Jonah. Um, he's going after Jonah. He's pursuing Jonah. And He uses His providence. He uses physical creation. He uses a great wind. He's, he's so committed that He goes to extreme measures to pull his, his, his child back as it was. As a Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 that Brother Greg has already cited or referenced. For the, whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? That what you have here is not inherently judge and jury. Jonah's not on the bar to receive um, penalty um, from a civil sanction, as it were. But what you have here is a father with a son who, yes, must administer a painful episode um, so that it would bring him back. Psalm chapter 37 is one of my favorite psalms. Verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. That God, we see here, utilizes um, a variety and a diversity of means to pursue Jonah. That He does not desert Jonah, nor could He, could he desert Jonah. He would not desert Jonah. Why? Because He is a loving God, a covenant-keeping God, and He will lose none in which He, in which he covenants with. He will not. That God will not go AWOL. On Jonah. And we'll see more of that in the days and the weeks to come. I did want to just highlight that as somewhat of a positive note to the end of the, the sermon. Um, why? Because, at the, again, on seemingly dark pages and difficult things to grasp, we must keep in mind that it's all grace. That when you're dealing with God's people, um, those whom have come to the Lord, covenanted with a God, covenanted with God, being a part of the new covenant, He says, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." This is Romans chapter eight. You know, all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. All those things may not be good, but they work together for the good. 
It's for your edification. It's for your sanctification. It's for your progress in the faith. And we must come to the recognition that yes, while we are saved and saints and we are walking with Him and we are seated in heavenly places and we've received all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus, that too, that we, there is a sin that remains in us. And that on many days, sometimes weeks, months for some of you, years that some of you would report, That you rebelled against God. You walked your own way. And yet God never went His. He was always there alongside you. Working all things out for your good. We must recognize this. I'm going to give you just two points of application. Number one. And these will go quick. Why? Because these are going to be hashed out in the weeks to come. We're going to continually be reworking these same things. Number one. Jonah is given to us. As an exhortation. Jonah is given to us as an exhortation. And then number two. Jonah is given to us for an encouragement. Jonah is given to us for an exhortation. What do you mean by that? I think it's important to recognize once again. um, That Jonah is given to us. Again, the message is in Jonah. It's not in what he preached. But the message that we take away from Jonah, the message is the man. Therefore, we look to the man. What do we see? We see a man. We see a man who seemingly raised under the truth, converted, seems to be at some point a holy man, used of God to be a mouthpiece for God. But at the same time, we recognize that he is a man at best. And that we see weaknesses of the best of men when left to themselves. Um, so why does God give us these things? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. Now all these things happen to them as examples. He's talking about Moses and the nation of Israel. And they were written, why? For our admonition, Paul says. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we're not to look at Jonah this morning and think, man... Like Jonah couldn't get it together. I'm, I must be doing, I'm doing pretty well, you know. Like I'm not that guy, you know. Um, I, I, I would beg God to try the reins because I'll, I'll almost guarantee you that we're a lot more like Jonah than what we think because Jonah didn't think he was all that much like Jonah. Um, so what we're not to do this morning with Jonah is to alleviate our guilt um, or to ease our conscience, appease our inner man. Why? Um, so that we can be um, apathetic and indifferent. We can be comfortable in our, our indifference and our lack thereof to follow the command of the Lord. No, Jonah was written for our admonition. He was given to us for our example. And that when we look at the example of Jonah this morning, what do we find? We find that the Lord's heart is pregnant with the mercy of God. Um, Jonah is sovereignly, righteously, and graciously commissioned to go to be a mouthpiece of that grace to a lost and a dying nation. With, but, but with principal disobedience, he defies the Lord's command. And we're not here this morning to run Jonah ragged. Why? Because these things were not written for him. Nor am I here to run you ragged. Yet at the same time, these things were written for you. They were written for me. This is a message to us all. Many of whom have a kindred spirit with Jonah. Men and women who have been uniquely 
um, covenanted together with God, uniquely experienced the grace of God, so often preached to us and even experienced in days past, gifted and equipped uniquely to serve within the body of Christ and give this message to a lost and a dying world. And how many days do we go? How many weeks have we went and we said no? I don't think I can. I don't think I will. And you may not have said it to God like Jonah did. But in the heart of your hearts and in your inner man and in your soul. Like your conscience and your guilt is overwhelming. Day in and day out. Why? Because you know that you were created for more. And yet day in and day out, you walk your own way and you argue that you don't have time. You don't have the equipment. We'll do it next week. I'll start raising my family tomorrow. I've got a plan together for next month. I've, you know, I know that I ought to be doing this thing, but a thousand excuses, you know, and you think, you think day in and day out, you know, like nothing happened yesterday. <laughs> God didn't pour a, a heap of fire out on me today, so, so I must be okay. Don't confuse God's patience and long-suffering for His apathy or indifference. God has commissioned us. He's given us all a call. The command is as clear to Jonah, or to clear to us as it was to Jonah. It's written in 66 books. We know what God requires of us. And, we, we, and the excuses are long gone. We can give them no more. Our clear commands are there for us, and we are not to embody them as Jonah. He's not to ease our conscience or appease our inner men. He's not, he's not someone that we can use to sear our consciences. Jonah is, is admonishing us today. To serve the Lord with all that we've got. To recognize that yes, it's hard and it's difficult. And on many days, I don't know what I'm doing. But how gracious God was. Not only in, in, in declaring me righteous. But giving me a practical righteousness where I can commune with Him. Such that, that, that it should spill over like a prophet to, to my family, to my home, and to a lost and a dying world. I should receive that privilege as the very grace of God. And yet some of you will not. Some of us will not. And some of us will have already removed ourselves from the presence of the Lord. You're here this morning, but you're not. You'll get in quick and you'll leave quick. And I'm not, I'm not, I know that there's providence and things have to happen, things like that. Um, that, 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 that some of the, that those are justified. I'm not, I'm not arguing against you know, um, that inherently. But if the reason that you're getting in late and you're coming in or you're leaving earlier as soon as you can is because you're running from the Lord because you know that you're wrong with Him, then you need to call upon the name of the Lord. Some of you haven't read your Bible in months. You know? Like, I know because I've been there. Because you know that when you go, you'll find Him. You know? So you'll stay behind the tree. You can hear Him walking in the cool of the day. So you'll find somewhere else. Brother or sister will call and you won't take it. The text will be there. They love you. They're just reaching out because they care. Allow God to use them to bring you back. If that's you today, don't run. God is pursuing you. You know? That, is, that should encourage us. Secondly, Jonah is given to us for a gift of, as a gift of encouragement. Listen, church, God is committed to you. More so than you are committed to Him. 
He could not forsake you because of Christ's sacrifice. He will not forsake you because of the love of the Father for a child. And He won't. Take courage this morning. Right, the greater than Jonah stands before us this morning is the one who accepted the call, fulfilled the command, obeyed the Father in every point. That When Jonah wouldn't, when Adam wouldn't, when Israel wouldn't, and we wouldn't. Why? So that you may know Him. That He paid for all of our sins. He is dedicated and committed to have you. And therefore, He will pursue you. And that should encourage us this morning. And that should scare us to death. Why? Because He just throws a storm. You know, that should encourage you if you're in him, communing with him, that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. But if you are apart from him, hiding from him this morning, know that you cannot hide for long, that God will find you. His patience will run out and that should frighten you this morning. And thus God stands Christ in his word today by the power of the spirit proclaims as much as Christ was present and they held them in their hands 2000 years ago. He stands today through Jonah, a greater than Jonah, calling his children back, calling me back. Calling Jonas back. Even leaders within churches and even leaders within homes recognizing that they've deterred. God is committed. You should find encouragement and edification this morning. Um, thus, the good shepherd comes, leading his sheep home. And I pray that he does it this morning with a gentle hand as he picks up his sheep and carries them back to the fold. May he not have to send the storm. May he not have to send the storm. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you and are so grateful to you, Father, for all that you are and all that you do. Father, we recognize this morning um, just your incalculable wisdom and your immeasurable love. Father, you write a story that I would never write. And at the same time, you're willing to do things in your son that I probably never would have done. Father, and for that, we are the most grateful. Father, we are the most grateful that in a time when we would not pursue you, you pursued us. And that, Father, um, you knowing the secrets of our hearts and the very intents of our thoughts, Father, and the thoughts altogether, Father, we have nothing to hide from you this morning. You know our faults and you know our failures. Father, and still you love us. I pray that you would show us those faults and failures. I pray, Lord, that this morning you would provoke in us and that you would try the range, you would search our hearts. Father, you would show us any wickedness that is within us. Father, not to chide us, um, not to penalize us like a judge over a jury, but to extend to us the love of a father to a son. Father, come alongside us this morning. If somebody's here that doesn't know Christ, Father, we pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would recognize their sinfulness, their departure from the one true God, their lack of communion and fellowship, the reality that they are eternal souls, special creations of God, 
And as her conscience cries out, creation calls out, calls out, cries out, and Christ this morning calls out, Father, may you draw them to yourself. May they see repentance not as um, the leaving of pleasures um, and joys and happiness and fun, um, but the leaving of frivolity and foolishness, that they may have true pleasure, joy, and life. And Father, um, if we're all saints here this morning, just continually remind us of your love. That great shepherd who will go to all ends to leave the 99 and to pursue the one. Father, on so many days I've been the one. Um, and I pray that you'll forgive me. Pray, Father, that you'll do the same for those that are here. No doubt there are some straying from the fold now. Maybe not in hand and foot, but in mind and heart. Father, draw them back. Pour out your love upon them. Commune with them. Show them Christ. Extend to them your love and mercy. And Father, that they may be employed and serve you all the days of their life, knowing little bit, little of the, of the heart of Jonah, like I do. Father, go with us now. Accomplish this work by the power of your Spirit as you lay Jonah before us. But even more than that, Christ, Father, may your work be accomplished in a way that only you will receive the honor and glory. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing two verses of number 388, He will hold me fast. Two verses of 388.